Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from a course that I presented on the book of Daniel in 2011. If you'd like the lecture notes to accompany this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com, then click on the link on the left side of the page titled, Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. Then find the Book of Daniel class, and that'll take you to the page with a substantial set of lecture notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study of the Book of Daniel. We're in Daniel 10 tonight, 10 through 12. I'm certain that nine's still on your hearts from last week. And so I want to begin with that also and uh, wrap it up. All right, let's pray. Lord God, you are the God who heals. You are the God who gives life and the God who restores. We thank you and praise you, Father, because when we look at John, we see what you do. We see your work through him. What a, what a tremendous disciple he has become, and a man of growth, and a man of faith, who now leads our ministry of visiting hospitals. And yet tomorrow he gets to visit his own hospital. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be the God who heals. That even if it be your will, Lord, that as the doctors go in, they would find nothing. And no surgery would even be necessary. But, Lord, we pray, Lord, that your will be done because you know and John's heart already is sensitive to the fact that you want to do so much through him in the midst of all this, whether it be the miraculous healing or whether it be a normal healing or whether it be whatever it is, you're you're working in all of it. Uh, You're going to work through doctors. You're going to work through through miracles, whatever it may be. Uh, So we pray, Father, for John's comfort. We pray that he would be healed and be well and that he'd have no pain and no suffering. We pray, Lord, that you'd give him strength and grace, Lord, to, to not only go in with this incredible attitude, but to have that as he goes through the whole process. Um, and and uh, we ask that you'll comfort him and reveal yourself to him. And we ask, indeed, that you would make yourself known to the doctors and the nurses around him, to those who are other patients and family members who see him, as well as John's own family and others who know him, that they would just be amazed at what you are doing through him and that John would be able to use this as a testimony to you. Lord, we praise you and thank you for John. We thank you for the gift that he is to us. We thank you for his friendship. We thank you for his servant heart. We thank you for the testimony that he is. And we ask now, Lord Jesus, that you would be his Lord and continue to do so, working in and through him in all things. We ask now, Lord, tonight that you would be glorified as we talk, as we study, as we open up your word. Lord, a lot of... A lot of difficult things for many of us because, in all honesty, I'm presenting some things that just that, that don't seem to square with what we've been taught, what I was taught, and what many of those who are in this room were even taught. But Lord, beyond it all, we would all be able to discern truth, whether I'm right or wrong, and I, I pray, Lord Jesus, that I'm not wrong, but if I am, forgive me, and make known truth to, to these brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, despite my, myself. But that in all things, that we would have unity, and the gospel would shine forth, and that we would even, if necessary, agree to disagree, but maintaining the unity and the fellowship, um, encouraging and uplifting and supporting one another. 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we thank you for all things, and we thank you that you are the God who is victorious in the midst of adversity. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. You're welcome. Thank you. And um, Cindy, ha- Cindy, we want us to go through you for the for meals. I, I think John's got a great network, but it doesn't hurt to add a few other meals. And he likes Mexican food, but he's really a good Mexican food cook. So you might not make it. You know, I'm not right. Any other preferences, John? But but we need some people to help sign up for meals. As John's, it, it, this is going to lay him up. He's going to be in the hospital for a few days uh, at Valley Care. And uh, I, I'm sure that he's probably not going back to work for, for a short period of time, at least, right? Yeah, a couple weeks. So we could use some meals for John for the next couple weeks. So contact Cindy, and then Cindy will navigate you to the right outlet uh, to make sure that, that that's taken care of there as well. So, and John does live alone, so uh, anyone that uh, is able to come by and keep him company there as well, that'd be great uh, um, also. So, Okay, here we go. Daniel chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. You've got to look at them as a whole. If there's anything I went over last week, it was you can't look at 9 separate from 7 and 8. And what we saw in 7, which is the crux, right? Remember, 7 and 2 are related to one another, right? In chapter 2, we had a stone, an image of a statue that had four parts, which we find out is four kingdoms. And what destroys it? A stone. A stone that was... Not made by human hands. And we hopefully discussed that week and the week thereafter where I went back over Daniel 2, the stone is Christ. Jesus himself is the stone that the builders rejected, as he says in the Gospels, that has demolished the kingdoms of this world. They are defeated because Jesus Christ is Lord. I think that, by the way, has massive implications for our understanding of the end times. Because many of us have been raised in the tradition that when Jesus comes again, he'll defeat the kingdoms of this world. And I say, no, he's already done it. The cross and the resurrection was his victory. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? The death and resurrection of Christ was his victory over the kingdoms of this world. I believe that's when the kingdoms of the world fell. All right? No, you're like, well, they're not, they're not falling. They're, they're still here. Well, they're defeated. Right, and I think Tripper actually said this in, this, in the textbook here. Uh, Oscar Coleman, a great scholar of the last century, said it this way, that we live between uh, V-Day, or, what was it, V-Day and, D-Day and V-Day. The victory was won in World War II at the Battle of Normandy. But the war still, still lasted a little while. The victory was won at the cross and the resurrection. The, the battle's still going on for a short while. Right? Hitler was a defeated foe even though he hadn't given up. The devil's a defeated foe, even though he hasn't given up. Okay? I think that's the way to think about this. All right? All right, so anyways, now we get to Revelation 7, and we got four beasts. And the four beasts just parallel the four kingdoms of the world. It says in, uh, in Daniel 7, verse, uh, what is it, verse uh, 18, uh, verse 17, the four beasts are four, in, are four kings. All right, but then what do we find out? The Son of Man will defeat the four beasts. The same, same thing's going on now. Christ will, will establish his kingdom. However, in Daniel 7, we found out more emphatically that the people of God are going to suffer before Christ establishes his kingdom. 
right? So, uh, and we looked at that word trampling, and he's going to trample. And uh, Daniel 7, verse 21 here, let me bring it up. Daniel 7, 21. I kept looking, uh, am I up? And the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. All right, verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. All right. Verse 27. Then the sovereignty, dominion, and greatness of all the kingdoms of the world will be given to the saints. So before the saints have victory, they suffer. All right. Daniel 8 goes into the same, goes into the same thing now. However, Daniel 8 is giving more of a focus on that little horn, that fourth beast, and the little horn that comes from the fourth beast which is probably Antiochus, but it doesn't matter who we define him as or describe him as. The reality is the suffering and opposition of God's people will be intense. But God will still win the victory. Daniel 9 now is, well, how is God going to establish his kingdom? How is God going to to do this? What does it mean the stone is going to destroy the image? What does it mean the Son of Man will be exalted? And so, when we say that God will establish his kingdom, another way of saying it is, God will remember his covenant. And so what we discussed last week was, Daniel 9 is full of this covenant language. God promised to establish his kingdom amongst his people. And he will be faithful. And the people being sent into exile was a punishment for their sins. They did not obey the covenant. The problem, however, was even the punishment of exile wasn't enough to bring them to repentance. And if I, if I could say anything, I'd say, that is so crucial. You cannot experience the blessings of the covenant without repentance, period. It's an absolute. It's just emphatic. It's clear. Read Deuteronomy 27 through 30, 31 through 34, whatever. Read Leviticus 25 and 26. You must repent. If you repent, then... I'll remember my covenant. Repentance always precedes the blessings of the covenant. Okay? Just emphatically. All right. That has a lot of implications, but I'm going to let it go. Here we go. Now, um, Daniel 9 then was, Daniel repents, and the answer is, well, good job, but unfortunately the people have not repented as a whole. Your repentance on behalf of the people, not good enough, and therefore, just as Leviticus 26 says, your punishment will be increased sevenfold. Okay? Now we have this 490 years. All right, if there's one thing I can convey, and I might go into this in more detail next week, if we have time tonight, we might get there uh, as well. But be careful about literalizing the numbers. Okay? Because Daniel got this prophecy in 539 B.C. And if you want to take 490 years you really need to begin it in 539 B.C. Because Cyrus's decree to let the Israelites go home was 539 B.C. And if you do the math, right, so let me go Daniel 9, 24, here we go. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, make atonement for sin, make, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It seems to me that the beginning of this 
69 weeks. The first 7 plus 62 is 69, or 483 years, begins with Cyrus. In the year Daniel got this prophecy, 539 B.C., but you go 483 years, and that still leaves us in like 50-something B.C. That's not Christ. So what Christians do is they go, oh, remember last, last class, right? Your hypothesis is wrong, so what do you do? You, right, you change the hypothesis. Right. It must be a different decree. And, there's, and now everyone says, well, it's this decree, or it's that decree, it's that decree, it's that decree. The problem is, I think, that you're trying to assume the numbers are literal. Now, here's another problem, that's this. Let's just suppose the numbers were literal for a second, and it really was 483 years until Christ would come, from whatever date we start with. The prophets are always clear that you can shorten the punishment by repenting sooner. Right? That's what the prophecy of Hosea is about. Habakkuk is about. I know Jeremiah said 70 years, but if you repent sooner, it will be over sooner. I know Daniel said 490 years, but if you repent sooner, it will be over sooner. Right? So, even if you literalize the numbers, you don't have to actually get to 483 years. It could be less than that. All right? So, you got problems there. All right, yes, Katrina. Ha-ha! Ding, 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 bingo! Woo-woo! You want a new car! All right. Those of you listening on tape, that was an incredible insight, and you should have been here. No. <laughs> I'm going to, so in our end time seminar, at the very end of it, I'm going to present in a short segment what are the signs we should be looking for that would bring the second coming of Jesus. Okay? Um, and then on Sunday mornings, beginning May 1st, two days after this, the seminar is the 29th of April, Beginning on May 1st, I'm going to have four weeks of the second coming. All right? Well, we'll just look at this in more, much more detail. All right? If we were to make a list, and I might raise this as a question, so you guys all have like inside information here, it's not fair. Um, uh, it raises a question. What are some things that need to happen before Jesus would return? And if I just ask this a question, I think we get some really interesting answers even from amongst yourselves. I'm not going to let you do it. Here we go. <clears throat> what the New Testament says are awaiting the second coming of Jesus will probably not correspond to most of your lists. Alright? And repentance of the nations is one of the items on that list. Right? I won't go any further now because it will take us too far afield, um, but I'll show you some references for that. Alright? <laughs> the scripture says if everyone repents, Christ will come back. That's, that's, what is it? All right. I may not answer, though, Dave. Go ahead. I, I see your hesitant. That's fine. No problem. It doesn't tell us what that number is. Right. Yeah. But there, that doesn't mean there isn't one. Mm-hmm. Correct. I don't think it might be. I think it is. I think the scripture emphatically says uh, that this is indeed, and, and I'll show you a reference later on here, if you will. So, yes. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, is when enough people, have, when those who have repented are going to repent, Christ will return. Now that raises all kinds of questions for our Western minds, doesn't it? Yes, Katrina. Yeah, you're trying to piece all everything together, I understand. All right, and, and we'll, we'll do more of that next week also. I really do need to finish 10 through 12 here tonight also. Uh, but the, the point is this, is there's no way you can take Jesus literally. When Peter says, how many times shall I forgive somebody? 
and he says 70 times 7. And, okay, I've forgiven you 409 times. I'm done. That's silly. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that Jesus is using that number? Amen. And the point that I made last week, and I'll probably reiterate at some point later on tonight, which I'm actually doing right now, um, is the Gospels begin with repentance. Jesus is picking up where Daniel 9 left off. And Daniel 9, the answer was, sorry, Daniel, not enough. That's not what the Father said to Jesus, though. When Jesus repented, just like Daniel, for the sins of the nation, guess what? The end times have begun. The fulfillment of prophecy is now here. All right? And I don't think any of us are going are to disagree now with, well, then, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Okay? And I, I mentioned that the word cut off, depending on your translation here, is the Hebrew term used for the making of a covenant. The whole point was, how are you going to be faithful to your covenant, dear God? And the answer is, after 483 years, the Messiah will be crucified. Which we, we're reading New Testament stuff into it, right? The Messiah will be cut off. I will confirm my covenant, right? Verse 27, he'll confirm the covenant. I think the NIV says confirm here, uh, which is a fine translation. He'll make a firm covenant. Okay, so the whole point of Daniel 9 then was, how is God going to be faithful to his covenant and therefore bring about the victory for his people? So again, God's evil nations opposed the people of God. People of God need to be, remain firm and, and, and be strong. And eventually God will establish his kingdom and the people of God will be victorious. How's he going to do it? Answer the Messiah. That's what Daniel 9 does for us. It answers that question. How is God going to do it? The answer is the Messiah. Okay? Everybody good with that so far? All right. I know there's more questions hanging there. We'll see if we can come back to them. I want us to go 10 through 12 now and still tying in the New Testament now. Let's go back to the New Testament because we've, we've got to do that there. And then we've got to figure out, okay, now what does that mean for us uh, um, as well? All right, Daniel 10 through 12 uh, are really our one big final section now, so it's quite appropriate to do it uh, under the heading of uh, these three chapters. Um, and what we find out in these three chapters is that the things that happen in heaven, I'm sorry, the things that happen on earth have a heavenly counterpart. This is very intriguing for us. All right? You see, in the book of Revelation... I'm going to jump to the New Testament really quickly here. In Revelation 12, there was war in heaven. Michael and the angels were waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels were waging war, and they were not strong enough. And the great dragon, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil or Satan, was thrown out of heaven. There's war in heaven. But what's Revelation about? War on earth. It's about war on earth between the kingdoms of the world and the people of God. Daniel 7, he'll make war with the saints. Revelation, he's going to make war. Right? The beast, that, Revelation 11, verse 7. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them. It's about war on the earth. So what's happening in Revelation 12 when there's war in heaven? The answer, the things that happen on earth have a heavenly counterpart. Okay, so let's go to Daniel 10 now, and let's see this, this play out. Now again, we're not going to be able to go through everything in, in these uh, chapters. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to be selective here. I'm going to start, I want to start in verse 4. I just scrolled up too far. Daniel 10, verse 4. 
All right, there we go. And here we go. All right. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was on the, by, the, by the bank uh, of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen. Now, don't worry about the details of this man. Just There's a certain man dressed in linen. Um, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, and his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like a flaming torches, and his arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words was like the sound of, a, of tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. Can anybody think of a New Testament example of that? No, I'm thinking of something else. Paul. Remember Paul? Christ appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. But the men didn't see the vision. They heard the sound, but didn't know. Right? Very interesting. All right. Now there's, there's actually another parallel in Revelation chapter 10 that I'm going to go into, I hope, later on as well. So here we go. Verse, uh, skip down now. So Daniel's got a vision. It's an, it's an angelic creature, a person. Um, whether it's God or not, we're not going to actually even touch uh, here right now. I will in the Revelation study over the summer. Uh, verse 10, Then behold, a hand touched, uh, touched me and set me um, trembling on my hands and my knees. And, I said, and he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man of, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the very first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. But here's where the things on earth have a heavenly counterpart. Here we go. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. Alright? Guess what? Daniel, I came to answer your prayer, but a demon stopped me. I, I, we're reading into it, but I think that's probably the best interpretation. A demon stopped me. An angel says, a demon stopped me. But Michael came along and helped me out. The dragon was waging war with Right against Michael, and Michael and his angels wage war against the dragon. There's war in heaven, right? This is this, this cosmic battle that's going on. Now we're going to skip down. Now, uh, let's see. Let's go down to verse uh, twenty. And then he said to me, "Do you understand?" Is that right? Yeah. He said to me, "Do you understand um, why I came to you? But I now shall return to fight against the prince of Persia." I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will, come to you, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me except these forces, uh, with, with me, uh, except these, uh, against these forces, except Michael, your prince. Okay? There's some cosmic battle going on in the heavenly realms. Now, I actually, I forgot to step back here and give you one more uh, larger context. All right, just like Daniel 7 gave us the basic framework. Daniel 8 focused more upon that little horn who opposes the people of God. Daniel 9 focused upon 
how God's going to win the victory for his people, so now Daniel 10 is going to focus on the victory for his people. Now, this is always the case with an apocalypse. They're, They're written to people who are undergoing suffering and oppression, almost always at the hand of a foreign nation. Okay, so the Israelite people, and they're being oppressed by a foreign nation. And that's what's happening, right? Daniel's people are in Babylon. And the answer is, just hang in there a little while longer. It's going to be difficult, but God will be victorious. Okay? God's in control. God will bring about the victory for you. So now 10, 11, and 12 are going to describe how that victory is going to come about, what's going to happen. Right? It's going to give us some great details, and it's a wonderful story. Um, here as well. Okay. So are we okay so far? I know that raises questions in our minds, right? Uh, interesting questions. Okay. So here's what we're going to do now. We're going to um, gloss over chapter 11. Uh, and the reason why is chapter 11, in your notes that I gave you, if you read chapter 11 and you're like, I don't know what it's talking about, the notes I gave you will help, I think, guide you through it. Because ultimately Daniel is describing, if you have a little history lesson for a second, the Babylonian Empire is replaced by the Persian Empire. Okay? 539 BC, Cyrus the Great, the Persian ruler, conquers Babylon. We, we kind of read about that, remember, in chapter 5. When we talked about Bel, you know, uh, Belshazzar having this great banquet, and the writing was on the wall, that was the night before he lost. He lost the next day. The Persians kind of come in now. They tell the, the, the Israelites, you can go home. What's intriguing is, Daniel didn't go home. Because the date given in Daniel 10 is three years after Cyrus had said you can go home, and Daniel's still there. All right, interesting question. All right. Um, The Persians, however, are eventually going to be replaced by the Greeks, Alexander the Great. He conquers all of Greece, Turkey, Palestine, Egypt, and all the way to Persia, to the borders of India. Unbelievable. All right. Alexander then, he dies. His empire is divided by his four generals. Right? But there's only one of those generals that becomes relevant to the people of Israel. All right? And it's the one that rules over Palestine. Eventually, that gives way to this guy named Antiochus. Okay? Antiochus in 167 BC goes into the Jerusalem temple, sacrifices a pig on the altar, as far as we can tell by historical resources. Uh, that's what he did. Put up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple. Have no other gods in my presence. Right? Puts an altar to Zeus. Stops the sacrificial system. The Jewish laws. You can't practice the Sabbath anymore. You can't do any of that stuff. Right? And for three years, commits what, the, what Daniel calls the abomination that makes desolation. Okay. Now the question is, What's going to happen? How's God going to be victorious uh, amidst all this? All right, I want to look at just, I kind of want to read through the end of, or the middle end of Daniel 11, and I want to point out a couple key things in it, but I don't want to, to get us bogged down in the details, because there's too much in chapter 12, honestly. So I think I'm going to start in verse 20, uh, 28, actually. Daniel 11, verse 28. All right, and I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to highlight or accent a few things here as we read through this section here. Um, but I don't want us to worry about the details, if that's okay. Uh, my notes that I gave you, the outlines that you have, 
will probably answer most of the details uh, for you as well. And, and most everyone's going to agree, by the way, with my analysis of Daniel 11. That, that's not, that, this isn't one of those issues that, that, that's disagreed upon. Right, verse 28. He will return with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. There's your key. Whoever this is, doesn't matter. His heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. Verse 29. At the appointed time, that means God's in sovereign, in sovereign control, right? At the appointed time, he'll return and come into the south, and but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For the ships of the Katim will come against him, therefore he'll be disheartened, and he'll return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant. That's the covenant that God made with Israel, or with, with his people. And take action. So he will come back and show, show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Here's the key now. He's going to show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. The people of God are going to be viewed as two groups. Those who regard the Holy Covenant and those who disregard the Holy Covenant. Those who are righteous and those who are not righteous might be a simple way of saying it. Amongst the people of Israel, just say the people of Israel for now, the people of God are divided into two groups. So this guy is going to show regard, end of verse 30, for those who forsake the covenant. And forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. And by smooth words, meaning deception, he's going to deceive. He will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Okay, so those are two groups within Israel. That's the key. Uh, let me go back over it again. Verse 30, 32. He'll use smooth words to lead some of the Israelites away. They'll act wickedly toward the covenant. covenant. But the people who know their God, and notice the righteous are looked at as those who know, um, their God will display strength and take action. And here's the two groups again, verse 33. Those who have insight, so in the previous verse they were those who had wisdom, now they're those who have insight, Among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. What's going to happen to the faithful, to the people who are righteous, who have insight? Answer, they will fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by plunder. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They went into the flame. Here we go, verse 34. Now when they fall, they'll be granted a little help. And many will join them in hypocrisy. And some of them, this is the the wicked now, or amongst the people of Israel who, who don't abide. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Meaning, If you're undergoing all this suffering, hang in there a little while longer. Hang in there a little while longer. All right, now verse 36. Then the king, 
will do as he pleases. We're still up on the screen. You guys got to tell me if we're not up on the screen. Here we go. Let me scroll down a little bit. For those of you guys that are following me here. All right. Oops, I went too far. Sorry. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is, de- is decreed will be done. All right. And let's see. Um, oh, verse 37 as well. Um, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, which is a bad translation, I think. He'll show no, no regard for God, is what it says in the, in the Hebrew text. Um, uh, or the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. all right? And then uh, all the way down to verse 45, he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. All right? He will come to his end, and no one will help him. You're like, all right, well, okay, how? The point is, of this chapter so far has been, some deceptive influence will come amongst the people of God, and some will fall away, and those who don't fall away will perish, or be captives. They're going to suffer. And you're going to suffer for a little while because the end ain't coming right yet. Now you can see why the other people are going to give in, right? They're going to give in because they don't want to suffer. The, the moral story is endure. Keep on suffering for the sake of God's kingdom because God will win a victory. And this wicked king, or whoever it might be, will meet his end. Now we get to chapter 12. And here's the glorious end of Daniel, the climax of Daniel, which just runs us into the New Testament. All right, and we've, and, we've, and we've got to go there. How will the people of God be victorious? Okay, so everyone understands this theme of suffering, though. It's going to include a time of suffering, right? So, chapter 12, here we go. Now, at that time, here we go. This is the end. Michael. The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there'll be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found in the book of, found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now the others are those who gave in and followed the smooth words. Okay? So amongst the people of Israel, those who gave in to the deception, that's, that's kind of the others. All right? Um, verse uh, 3. Those who have insight, right? The same word that was used in chapter 11, I believe, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing on one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, 
who is above the waters of the river? How long? There's your great question, right? Everyone who's undergoing suffering wants to know, how long? How long, oh Lord? How long? So Daniel asked the question, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Which is another way of saying, I'm not telling you. <laughs> as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Notice that? The end will come when the people have been shattered. Verse 8, but as for me, I heard, but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, go your way, Daniel. For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. Many of the people of God are going to suffer. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time of the regular sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination is, of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you'll enter, rest, and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. All right, here we go. What's the answer? The answer is resurrection. How will God win the victory? Well, chapter 9, the Messiah will be cut off. But the answer is, you're going to be resurrected. You see, the whole moral story is, you're going to die. Right? You're going to die. But that's not the end. Resurrection happens. Not for the wicked. Well, kind of for the wicked. But resurrection happens for the righteous. And now, right, what we all as Christians, what's the, what's the New Testament story of, of living in the tribulation? The answer is, endure for a little while because there will be a resurrection where God makes us victorious. And it's that hope of the resurrection, the hope of God's restoration of creation, the hope of that eternity in resurrection that carries us through. That's exactly what these people are told. All right? In fact, what's interesting is this. You just don't find resurrection in the Old Testament. This is really the only emphatic description of resurrection in the Old Testament. You have some, some imagery that we can draw symbolism from here and there. But Daniel 12 is, and is really the one emphatic statement of uh, resurrection uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's verse 2, at many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. So, but there is a resurrection of the wicked, one second. There is a resurrection of the, of the wicked, by the way, right? But others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The resurrection of the righteous and the wicked here. So go ahead. Uh, no, because Sadducees don't believe in, da in Daniel. They only believe in Genesis through um, um, Deuteronomy. So, so, 
I'm not sure I'm grabbing your question perfectly, Dave, to give you the right answer here. Um, let me see if I can answer it this way and see if this helps. Uh, okay, please, go ahead. No, it's okay. Okay. It arises, uh, the question is, where does the Sadducean conception that there's no resurrection uh, arise from? The answer is extremely complex. Okay. So there's not one mitigating factor that really hones into it. But here's something I think very crucial, and if we, if we understand this, it'll really bring a lot of the New Testament, Jesus' mission into perspective. All right? And that is this. The covenant that we're talking about here is that God will bless you with peace and prosperity in the land of promise. Right? That's the whole point. If you obey my covenant, you'll be blessed and you'll have peace. If you don't obey my covenant, you will not have peace. In fact, I'll kick you out of the land. Okay? Now, the question then becomes, what does the messianic kingdom look like? This is the question of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Right? It's not the only question, but it's one of the key questions. They both believe that there's going to be this kingdom. Well, the Sadducees are looking for the kingdom to be here and now on the earth. Hence, there's, there's no resurrection, there's no need for that. God establishes his kingdom here and now. The kingdom now that God establishes means that we have peace and prosperity from our enemies. Right? And the, the, the everlasting element of the kingdom, if I'm a Sadducee who doesn't believe in after, the, the afterlife, so to speak. Well, well, how do you have an everlasting kingdom? And the answer is... You need two things. You need land and family. Land guarantees that I can have prosperity. That's how I get my, my source of survival. Family guarantees that when I get too old to work the land, my family will work the land and provide for my well-being. And my family having land means that my progeny continues the dynasty. It becomes an everlasting kingdom because you have a family. So notice the in question is, this man has a wife but he doesn't have any children through her. And then he dies. So the brother takes on the child, and that's, takes on the wife, which is, that was the law. Because you had to continue the family of that brother. So when brother two marries his, other, his brother's wife, the child of that wedding belongs to the original husband to perpetuate his family. This is the Sadducean thinking. Therefore, there's no need for a resurrection. Make sense? All right. The Pharisees were open to the concept of resurrection, but where they were mistaken and why they had a problem with Jesus was they were still thinking that the kingdom would be this worldly. Right? And Jesus' answer is, my kingdom is not of this world. So the Pharisees missed it. Okay. You see, resurrection meant revolt. Resurrection meant revolution. So there's a lot embedded in there as well. The Sadducees don't like resurrections because they don't like revolutions because they're prospering from the Pharisaic, from the rule of Rome. So there's a, see how it's a, it's, it's a very complex picture, if that makes sense to everyone. The Sadducees don't like resurrection because resurrection means overthrow Rome. A restoration of Israel means Rome's out. The Pharisees wanted Rome out, but they were thinking with us in power. 
and not with them. And Jesus answers, no, no, here's the deal. My kingdom now is going to transcend the land. It's going to be blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. He doesn't say land anymore. He says the earth. But that means the Gentiles can be blessed too. And this is where Daniel fits in so beautifully now, right? The point of the story was, that we just read in Daniel 10 was, there's a heavenly battle going on that corresponds to this earthly battle. The Pharisees thought their enemy was Rome. Jesus says your enemy is the devil. Rome's not your enemy. The devil is. Jesus casts out demons because that's the enemy. Okay? So this is where Daniel's fitting. So now Jesus is saying, look, I'm bringing about a resurrection and a restoration. Now, by the way, the kingdom of God will come to the earth. And so it's a heavenly kingdom, not of this world. It means it transcends this world. And eventually, God will restore the entirety of creation. Okay? On the world, on the earth. No problem with that. All right? But the Pharisees thought, they, they, they were thinking too worldly also. They weren't thinking with an eternal perspective. So, everyone okay with that? Does that make sense so, to some extent? All right, very good. All right, so here we go. That's correct. So now, you have the, the, the Greek word gay means land or earth. Okay? So the question when you have that word now becomes, well, how do you, how do you translate it? Okay? Do you translate it as land or earth? So it's true. Fair enough. Then in, in the Beatitudes, you can say, blessed are the, uh, are the merciful, for they shall inherit the land. That would be a fair translation. Only context is going gonna, is gonna to tell us. Okay? Well, I think the whole context of the New Testament becomes, go ye therefore to all nations. Jesus is overthrowing the borders. He's demolishing the walls of separation there as well. More emphatically, though, you have two passages that I would allude to that, that solidifies that it's now the whole world. First off, you have Ephesians 6, where Paul quotes the uh, Exodus and says, Children, obey your parents. All right? Because this is the first commandment with a promise that you may live long on gay, which could be land or earth. But he's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's not writing to the people in Israel now. The church in Ephesus don't want to live long in the land of Palestine. They want to live long in Ephesus. Clearly, in Ephesians 2, the word gay means earth, not land. And no translation goes with land there. I think all the translations go with, go with earth in, in, in Matthew 5 also. All right. The second is, Paul in Romans 4 references the promise to Abraham and says that, Romans 4.13, that Abraham would inherit the cosmos. He doesn't use the word gay. Gay means land or earth. Cosmos means the world. So Paul is clearly thinking globally in terms of the fulfillment of the promise now. It transcends the, the national borders of the land. Is that where we get cosmos? Yeah, cosmos. Yeah, the Greek word is cosmos. Uh, actually would spell out the same way, except Greek has a K, not a C, because there are no Cs in Greek. Yes. 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 All right, so, so in a different sense, though, right? So the question is, uh, so help me out here if you're asking a different venue, but the question is, did the Jews understand that God and man, God and the Israelites, would be reunited again? Exactly. That's the whole idea. I don't know. It's, you see... 
when God established the, the kingdom that we're talking about here, the stone of Daniel 2, um, the messianic kingdom of Daniel 9, uh, or uh, um, uh, the Son of Man in Daniel 7, which we all know is Christ. All right. The signs of that restoration is A, repentance. Got to have repentance, or you don't have any restoration. All right. B is peace and prosperity on the land, which I think in the New Testament is the world, which we now know happens at the second coming. It's begun now, but that's ultimately fulfilled at the second coming. But also was that Yahweh, God, will return to be with his people. Okay? You see, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, by very nature of it, Yahweh left. Right? Yahweh's not with his people anymore, is he? Leviticus 26, I didn't really focus on this passage last week, but the key verses are 11, 12, and 13 Leviticus 26. I will be their God, and I will dwell among them. Right? That's the key promise of the covenant of Leviticus 26. Now remember, Leviticus 25 and 26 are, if you don't obey my covenant, I'm sending you, sending you away. And when I send you away, if you repent, you can come back, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. But if you don't repent, I'll increase your punishment sevenfold. How do the Gospels begin? John the Baptist quotes Isaiah 40, says, Prepare a highway in the desert for Yahweh. Make way for Prince, not Prince Ali, Yahweh. The Gospels begin with John the Baptist saying, Yahweh is coming back to the land. Make a desert in the high, a highway in the desert for Yahweh, which translates Lord in our English Bibles. It's Yahweh. Yahweh is coming back. What does Jesus say? Well, even the Gospel of Matthew begins. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then the Gospels end with, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In Jesus, the fulfillment of all God's covenant promises are found in Christ. And he's established his kingdom. Okay? Now, and we'll do this much more in the end time seminar, because, of course, we say, well, well wait a second, well, you know, we've got a conflict here. We've got some more things to deal with here, here as well. But we've got a conflict here, and that is, you're telling me that God establishes his kingdom, but it doesn't look like that yet. And that's what we call in the New Testament this already and not yet aspect, which we really wouldn't have seen had we not realized it in the New Testament. He's already established his kingdom, but he hasn't yet established his kingdom. He already dwells with us, because we're all temples, but he doesn't yet fully dwell with us. You see, the New Jerusalem's not here yet. So they're both happening in the here and now. I'm sorry, it's both true in the here and now that it's already happened and not yet happening. So we're, we're still waiting for the second coming of Christ. All right, very good. All right, was there another question, or can I? All right, let me, let me, let me roll on. I'm going to forego the break. We've got like 15, 20 minutes left here. Um, and we're on a roll here. Let's finish this up if we can um, as well. So here we go. Um, now, I think what I'm going to do here, and I'm going to skip to um, the end of Daniel and um, uh, of chapter 12. And I think, that, no, no problem, if you need to stand up or stretch or whatever, feel free to do so, please. Don't worry about it at all. No, it doesn't bother, bother me at all. All right. The question now is this. Verse 4 of Daniel 12. Seal up the words of the book until the end of time. Okay? Now, again, whenever you see the end of time in prophecy, you have to ask the end of time from what perspective? 
We look at it as Western modernists and literalize it and say the end of all time. Therefore, this, is gonna, this book's going to be sealed up until the very, very, very end. But if Jesus began the end, is it possible that the book's been unsealed? Okay? And for that I say, let's turn to Revelation chapter 5. Alright? Revelation chapter 5. Now, I'm going to acknowledge that not everyone is going to agree, whether they, even those who agree with my overall perspective uh, uh, on this, but I really do believe um, uh, that this is indeed what's happening. In Revelation chapter 5, we have the, we have, I wish I had, uh, I had time to really, to do this justice. Um, Revelation 5 is setting the stage. 4 and 5 are your introductory chapters to the vision of Revelation. Okay, does that make sense? Chapter 1 is your introduction to the book of Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven churches. Chapter 4, I saw heaven opened up. The vision itself begins in chapter 4. 4 and 5 are your introductory. It sets the table for what's going on. And what do we see happening? Well, we see the worshiping of God in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, God has a book in his right hand. Verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written on the inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. I believe that this is the book that Daniel was told to seal up. I think that's, John, well, that's what John's doing. He's drawing us to Daniel. And I think that's justified because so much in Revelation is the unveiling of Daniel's prophecy. All right, time, times, and half a time, you find in the book of Revelation. Right? The time frame is in Revelation. I mean, the beast that comes up out of the abyss is, in, is Daniel, right? We, we showed that in Revelation 13, Daniel 7. I mean, there's so much overlap. And here's what happens. John says, I saw a strong angel, verse 2, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the, to, to break the book, to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion and this from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes with seven spirits of God sent on all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat in the throne. What's the story of Daniel? Answer, Daniel 9. How is God going to be victorious and establish his kingdom and, and what we call vindicate, prove right his people? Answer, the Messiah will be cut off. Daniel, you can't see the book. It, you can't open it. Seal it up. And then what happens? There's a lamb that was slain that's now worthy to open the book. And what does he do? Chapter 6, he opens the book. He opens the book. He breaks the first seal, the second seal, the third seal, the fourth seal, the fifth seal, the sixth seal, the seventh seal. So in Daniel 7, I'm sorry, in Revelation 6, Revelation 8, skipping over 7, he breaks the seven seals. Now we'll go to, Daniel, to Revelation chapter 10. All right, let's see here. All right, Revelation chapter 10. And notice the parallel with Daniel chapter 10. It's not going to be perfect, but don't worry about it. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, with a rainbow upon his face. 
upon his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his right hand a little book which was open. And he placed his right foot in the sea and his left foot in the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. When he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. <clears throat> and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there should be delay no longer. If The parallel with the angel who appears to Daniel in chapter 10, and in Daniel chapter 12, even though there's two angels in Daniel 12, and this angel, he's got a book, and it's open. And in chapter 5, there was a book, and it was sealed shut, but now it's been peeled open. Now, not everyone agrees with this, but I think the book of chapter 10 is the same book of chapter 5. And I think it's the book of Daniel. And what's happening? It's being opened up. God's plan is being revealed. How so? In the Lamb that was slain. Not waiting for the second coming of Jesus to establish this book. The first coming of Jesus opened the book. Now, what do we find out? Well, there's going to be some suffering for the people of God. They're going to have to endure for quite a while. All right? And even in chapter 13, it says, those who are going to be into captivity, to captivity they'll go. You know, this, the people of God have to endure longer. And here's the reason why I think that's the, the case, by the way. Because Jesus was our model. How did Jesus establish his covenant? By dying. How do we continue in establishing his covenant? By dying. How, are we, how was Christ victorious? He died and rose again. How are we victorious? We die, but we rise again. Right? That's, without, I think, pretty, pretty clearly um, the, 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 the fulfillment of all, of all of this as well. Okay, let's see here. Um, here's something I wrote up. I figured I'll show it here on the screen. Conclusion. All right. The book of Daniel is about pagan rulers who attack God's people. I'll give you time to write this down if you want. Or I'll leave it up here so you can write it down by the time we're all done. The book of Daniel is about pagan rulers who attack Yahweh's people, trying to make them conform. Kind of use some shorthand, if you will. To pagan ways. It's about pagan rulers who attack Yahweh's people, trying to make them conform to pagan ways. And boasting arrogantly against Yahweh and his people. Now, we've we got more of the New Testament to look at here in a minute, so here we go. They boast arrogantly against Yahweh and his people. But the wise people will endure and be vindicated. Again, vindicated means to be proven right. As Yahweh establishes his kingdom and destroys the oppressing nations. Say it again. The wise people will endure and be vindicated as Yahweh establishes his kingdom and destroys the opposing nations. But the Messiah must be cut off. The Messiah must be cut off. All right? Now, uh, all right, questions? I'll, I'll leave it up. Here you go. Questions? Comments? Thoughts here? Cause we, I've got some time. I've got a few more directions I can go, but, but let's, 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 let's wrestle with all this here. 
Um, I think it's an emphatic, the question is, what's the shattering of the power of the holy people? I think it's um, the trampling underfoot. Um, and it's, if, you, if you're already in Revelation, turn to Revelation chapter 11. Um, you'll see two passages here that will, that will resonate with Daniel. One's 11 verse 7. It says, let me, I'm going to toggle over for a few minutes. Here we go. Uh, when they finish their testimony, I'll go back. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Right, and I'll, I'll spend a lot of time on the two witnesses in, in the Revelation study this summer. I believe the two witnesses are all Christians in history. Okay? And I'll, I'll, I'll explain why I believe that later on. And what happens to the two witnesses? The power of the holy people are shattered. The holy city is trampled underfoot. Right, Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. And notice the parallels with what we saw in Daniel now here. <clears throat> this is the, if you want to call it the Antichrist, that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. Here we go. It's more than that, but that's okay. There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. I mean, that phrase runs through Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 10, right? All over the place. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Well, everyone whose name has not been written from the, book, from the foundation of the world, the book of life, of the Lamb who has been slain. And look at verse 10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. Okay? This, is, this is it. How are we victorious? By proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to death. Now, we tend to be privileged here in the West. That often doesn't go hand in hand. But a study of the history of the church tells us that often goes hand in hand. The proclamation of the gospel will often lead to death. We'll be tempted to give in so that we don't face persecution and suffering. Right? That's, that's, that's kind of the, the moral of the story as well. Let's go back to, to, to Daniel 12 for a second because there's another question that we didn't answer there. And that's the time frame now. All right? um, notice again, how long was the question... And the answer was, oh, a time, times, and half a time. Which we saw in chapter 7, the first reference to time was this ambiguous time frame, this unclear time frame. How long is a time, times, and half a time? No way to know, because the word times is plural. Right. So that tells us that the answer to Daniel's question is, I'm not giving you the exact time frame. However, below, we have two numbers. There'll be 1,290 days. And then there'll be 1,335 days. Now, if you can reconcile those numbers, you've just earned yourself a PhD, because no one's done it. You can't, you can't, no one, I've never found anyone that can explain the difference of these two numbers. Well, there's 45 extra days in there. Why? It says there'll be 1,290 days. Oh, I hope you hang in there for 1,235 days. Why? Here's what's interesting. The book of Revelation uses, I mentioned this last week, and I think it might have been a little confusing for some of you. The book of Revelation uses the 42 months of Daniel, okay? And it uses three and a half years, and it uses 1,260 days. Another number different. 
He's clearly got Daniel's time frame in mind. The time frame's here. But why does John say 1,260 days? Now, if you do the math on a Jewish calendar, 1,260 days is 42 months. That's three and a half years because they're 30-day months. So John's clearly working in this mindset of it's three and a half, it's three and a half, it's three and a half, which I think is the last three and a half of the 70 weeks that we discussed a little bit last week. Okay, if, that, if you're not confused on that. But Daniel has an extra month and an extra 45 days in there. All right, what's the moral of the story? It won't be that long. How long will it be? It, will be, it won't be too long. It, see what I'm saying? In apocalyptic literature, you use this time frame to say it's not forever. You see, you're going to have to endure for a little while. The whole message has been you're going to have to endure, guys. Well, how long? Well, I'm not telling you that. I'll just tell you one thing. It won't be that long. It won't be that long. Okay? So, oh, questions, comments? Nine remarks? Yes. Um, 9.26. The question is, when the Messiah is cut off, let me see if I have anything in my notes, because I don't think there's anything... Uh, um, <coughs> God bless you, necessarily there, other than I think, um, the, the question is, I'm sorry, I didn't finish the statement. The question is, what does it mean that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing? I think it just references his death. I don't know if there's anything special ab- ab- about it. I don't think I have anything in my notes, I don't, uh, that might elaborate on that. I just think it references his death. And the That's, what translation you got? I'm actually, this is out of the book, the NIV, not inspired. No, it's Okay. <laughs> Uh, 12, 12, 5. That's, that's just, that's a comment. It's not a translation, it's a comment. I don't see that in any of the translations. It's a comment. It's an appropriate comment. It makes sense. Because the whole point is, we're back where we were in chapter 10, at the bank of the river. Uh, with the angel hovering over the waters. The, the, the language hovering over the waters is not in the text. But if it were in the text, it would bring up Genesis, right? The Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Um, but, yeah, the commentator just got that. Where you got that? There you go. 12.6? Thank you. Yeah, it's the hovering concept that I'm speaking of, though. I don't think the hovering is, is in the text, which would, which would connote Genesis. It might have a Genesis illusion in it. I'm not opposed to that at all. Especially when you see the river of life in, in, in Revelation 22. Okay. Uh, so you've got that. And, and it is the Tigris River, which of course is Genesis 2. So you've got some of that, that in there as well. But go ahead, Pepe. Very good. The question is, is where do we get this premise of this uh, uh, seven-year tribulation? Because um, if, if, if we're clear here, we only have three and a half years left. Right? Which I think is a symbolic time frame, which I think references the entire New Testament era. I think Revelation justifies that, but we'll have to look at that later, uh, more so. Um, so where do, we, where do we get all this notion? Well, if you were here in the last hour, what we were talking about was um, uh, uh, the culture of the day and the rise of modernism. And one of the responses to that liberalism was a literalistic interpretation of the Bible. Meaning, literalism at all costs. 
Okay, one of the fathers of this movement actually said that. Literalism at all costs. Now, what happens with literalism at all costs is it safeguards the Bible from the liberals. Because if it's literal, and it says seven years, it's seven years. We don't have to worry about somebody saying, well, seven years actually means, right? Let's worry about that. If it says God made all the animals according to its kind, it's all the animals according to its kind, we don't have to worry about the liberals saying, no, evolution is actually the way it happened. This literalism came in, and the best thing to do was, we'll just literalize everything. Furthermore, we don't need all these scholars telling us all it means, because the meaning is plain and obvious. It's evident. Well, it's that interpretation then. So, so what I discussed in the, last, in the last class was, what happens is you get a, a hypothesis, and then you start running with it, you start experimenting with it, right? So what happens is you get this hypothesis, and you start literalizing things, because we're safeguarding it from the liberals. We don't want everyone to go all wacky with this stuff. And I understand, and I respect that. I, I have no problem with that. I, I don't agree with it. I think it's wrong, you know, and we're manipulating the Bible to fit our own hypothesis. But you start running with that theory now, and what happens, and you start fitting all the pieces into your theory. That's, that's what you do, right? You, you, you explain everything in light of your theory. Don't worry about it. So my theory says this, and it says this, and it says this. Therefore, that means that, and that means... No, that doesn't mean that. Yes, it does, because my theory necessitates it. And so we start getting this. All right. See, if we were to go further, and maybe we'll, we'll jump a little, a little bit next week here, for those of you that, that want to come back as well, is this. The New Testament emphatically states... And Paul, the man of lawlessness, will go into the temple and set himself up as God, all Daniel language. This is all Daniel, right? He'll go into the temple and set himself up as God right? and exalt himself over every so-called God. Daniel language again. I'm, I'm re- referencing 2 Thessalonians 2. Commit what you might call the abomination that makes desolation, even though Daniel doesn't use that language. Uh, uh, there, there as well. So now, okay, here's what we got to do. Temple means temple. We've literalized everything. Temple means temple. Problem. So, so now they go back and they read Daniel in that way. It's kind of what's happening, right? And so we, we, we come up with a whole system that starts with that assumption that everything should be taken literally because we have to safeguard against the liberals, which I can respect and understand what they're doing. I don't agree with it. Right? And then we've read everything back into the text now. All right. Now, what I've said to you before is this. That interpretation is not more than 150 years old. I mean, technically you can date it to the early 1830s or whatever, but really, in all reality, it comes to a man named John Nelson Darby, late 1800s, who was an influencer of C.I. Schofield, beginning of the 1900s, 1899, 1905, all right, that then gave rise to this whole field, of, or this whole theory of what's called dispensationalism. It has no historic basis in the church beyond the 1800s. And it arose in England, primarily in this response to liberalism and Darwinism and things like that, with this literalistic hermeneutic. It's kind of what's going on there as well. Make sense? All right. Yeah, very good. So I'll give you, I'll give you a quick insight here, and I'll probably delve into this in, in the seminar. One of the things I said was, you know, at the beginning of class was, if you make a list of all these things that have to happen before the second coming of Jesus, rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple on top of people's lists, because the Antichrist has to, has to desecrate it. But when you look in the New Testament, what's happening? Jesus says, I'm the temple. And then Jesus says, and you're the temple. If we go with that, and you look to the New Testament, anytime you see the phrase temple of God, it always refers to us, 
either Christ himself or us. What do we find out in Daniel? Whether it's Antiochus, it doesn't matter. In Daniel 11, right? He's going to go in amongst the people of God. He's going to use smooth words, right? Daniel 11. And he's going to influence some away. But the wise will understand. The wise will suffer. But, right? In other words, what are we expecting the Antichrist to do? To go into a temple in Jerusalem? You really think that's going to fool any Christians? But it says in, in Matthew, he'll deceive the elect if that were possible. What we should expect is the Antichrist to come within the church and try to use deceptive teachings to lead us astray, away from suffering and persecution, and follow after him. That would deceive Christians. See what I'm saying? So here's the irony of it, though. Guess what? The devil, if if I'm right with that, the devil's going to come into our midst and try to wreak havoc and bring us down. And we're over there looking at Jerusalem for an Antichrist. Seductive, isn't he? Exactly. Gets us to look in the wrong direction. I, and, I, and I know that that's a, 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 you know, a, a, a controversial theory that I just proposed to you and whatever. I, I would say it's a historical viewpoint. I would say it's the majority of Christian theologians' viewpoint. It's not what's in the bookstores. It's not what's in the movies. Okay? But I think that's biblical. I think the answer is we've been looking in the wrong direction. We're looking at the wrong things. So, all right, let me close in prayer. And maybe we can bring some of this up next week as well and uh, go whatever directions you guys want to go in as well. So, Father, whatever is truth, we want to know it because that is Jesus Christ. And, uh, Lord, we lift up our brothers and sisters right now around the world who are very much this hour suffering persecution, death, We pray, Father, that you would strengthen them and encourage them. We pray, Father, for our own selves as well, that we would have the courage to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ unashamedly. And if we are suffering for it, so be it. May you empower us and strengthen us. As as the Apostle Paul, he's going to be empowered to speak before kings and governors and authorities and the rulers of the people. Help us to do so as well, because that's what you use. You use us. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for their integrity and their willingness to listen, even if they don't agree with maybe what I'm all saying. Their willingness to weigh things out. Help us, Father, to find truth and to know truth and to know truth alone. Help us, Lord Jesus, to not be deceived by any type of false error or false teaching or any ideology that will lead us astray. Help us not to be persuaded by comfort and the luxuries of this world, but instead to forsake all for the kingdom of God. I ask your blessings and grace and mercy upon my brothers and sisters tonight. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.